listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello, and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast Organization. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. This week, we're very excited to feature an interview with a man who, at the height of his career, served as the highest-ranking officer in the United States military. That's right, Thomas. We're honored to be able to have Admiral Mike Mullen as a guest on our show. Our first guest tonight is the uh, principal military advisor to the President of the United States and the highest ranking officer in this country. My guest tonight, he is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. My guest tonight spent 43 years in the Navy. That's even longer than that guy from the village people. Please welcome back to the program, Admiral Mike Mullen. Please welcome Admiral Mike Mullen. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. Admiral. After a long career as a surface warfare officer in the Navy, Admiral Mullen served as Commander of Naval Forces Europe from 2004 to 2005, where he oversaw operations in the Balkans and the Mediterranean. Afterward, he was assigned as the Chief of Naval Operations. He served in that role from 2005 to 2007, and is noted for having advocated for a 1,000-ship Navy. In 2007, President Bush nominated Admiral Mullen to be the next Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Following Senate approval, Admiral Mullen became the highest-ranking member of the Armed Forces. During his tenure as chairman, Admiral Mullen was a critical player in repealing the policy of don't ask, don't tell, arguing that, Speaking for myself and myself only, it is my personal belief that allowing gays and lesbians to serve openly would be the right thing to do. No matter how I look at this issue, I cannot escape being troubled by the fact that we have in place a policy which forces young men and women to lie about who they are in order to defend their fellow citizens. For me, personally, it comes down to integrity. Theirs as individuals and ours as an institution. After serving as chairman, Admiral Mullen retired from the Navy with more than 40 years of service. He is now a frequent lecturer and news commentator on national security issues. Admiral Mullen, thank you so much for being here with us today. We truly appreciate you taking the time. You it's good to be with you. You graduated from the Naval Academy in 1968, and like most service academy graduates, you then had a five- to six-year service commitment. At what point did you realize that you wanted to make the Navy a lifelong career? Well, it didn't. there wasn't a magic point in that regard. When I graduated, what I found out was I loved going to sea. I was on a destroyer on the West Coast. Uh, a year later, we deployed off the coast of Vietnam. I was excited uh, about the job. I love sailors. I love going to sea. And then I, not unlike when I went to the Naval Academy and I came from a you know small little part of Los Angeles, meeting my classmates from all over the country, it sort of opened up the country to me. Well, when I was on my first ship and I deployed to the Western Pacific, even though it was during wartime, I saw Japan, I saw the Philippines, and the world just sort of opened up. So it was always very exciting. 
within that five years, actually just before the five-year anniversary of my commissioning, I took command of a small ship. I loved command at sea and uh, wanted to do it again. I had a really rough start. I had a got a very bad fitness report initially, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends said I didn't have much of a future, and were counseling me to leave. But I wanted to do that again. It took me about 11 years to recover professionally and get back to command again. So there wasn't, and then at that point, what I really wanted to do was command ships. I didn't have any target set, notionally 20 years at some point, because I obviously I was in 16 years by, by the time I took command the second time. And, and then had an opportunity to do it again. So I had a third command, uh, after which if the Navy said, we have no place for you, I would have gladly saluted and had a, said I had I've had a great life and and marched off to do something else. But they de- they assigned me in a way that eventually I got selected for flag, commanded a couple more times, and then brought me to headquarters. So it was more evolutionary than it was. I've made up my mind. I'm staying for you know to make it a career, and certainly had no plans to stay in over 43 years, which is what happened. So skipping ahead to kind of the pinnacle of your career, I guess. As chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you gained a reputation outside the military for your engagement with the general public, your willingness to go on late-night talk shows, and your engagement with leaders in the business community. We were wondering if you could tell us what it was like to go on the national stage as the face of the U.S. military and why you chose to take that approach. So I grew up in uh, Hollywood, and my father was a publicist, so... And he had been a journalism major from the Midwest, a Depression kid that went to the West Coast, got into the entertainment business and was a terrific communicator, terrific writer. So it's almost by osmosis that I became that communications was always important to me. And while before I took over as chairman, I was the head of the Navy as a CNO. And you have a bully pulpit to a certain sense, but it's a relatively small audience. It's a service audience. When I was selected to be chairman, uh, and that was a bit of a surprise to, to me as well as a lot of other people. I had a bully public to the world, and I'm a sailor. I've got two ground wars. I got young men and women getting killed every single week, getting getting wounded, and I wanted America to understand the wars we were in. And this goes back to Vietnam for me. When I was, you know, in the Vietnam era, which was my era, the military got blamed for the war, uh, and I wanted to make sure the American people saw our young people who were extraordinary, what their sacrifices were, including those who died, and that the American people would consciously make a decision that, yes, this is something we want to do uh, or we don't want to do. Uh, And I wanted to open it up and have a conversation with the country as much as possible. We have a habit in any institution, it was true in the Navy, it's true in the military, of sort of talking to ourselves. I had an opportunity because of that position, because we were at war, because there were so many wounded and and, uh, families who were losing their loved ones uh, to talk to the country. And I wanted to do it in a way to audiences that didn't know much about us. We're less than 1% or half of 1% of the population of the country. Americans didn't know who we were. And hardly, you know, they, they knew we were at war, but that was about it. And because we're such a small percentage, Americans hadn't bought into the wars. So I wanted to have that conversation with them. And I chose as many venues as I could, including the Letterman Show, which, you know, had millions of viewers every night. My wife and I went on The View, which had millions of viewers, a show that I obviously would normally seek to go on to. Also, we were on the I was on The Daily Show three times. 
all of that was to talk to audiences that didn't know much about us. And also because it goes back to my my roots, if you will, I understood the power of publicity and communication and the entertainment world and industry. And so I was trying to leverage that as much as I could. I think it's interesting how you bring up wanting to engage society, engage the public uh, and have that discourse with society. One of your legacies during your time as chairman is overseeing the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, the policy that prohibited gay and lesbian personnel from serving openly in the military. When you did that, there were critics both inside and outside the military who felt that the military was succumbing to outside social pressures at the cost of things like unit cohesion and combat effectiveness. I'll never forget being just a few weeks ago at Kandahar, a Army Sergeant Major with five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And a forward operating base said, Senator McCain, we live together, we sleep together, we eat together. Unit cohesion is what makes us succeed. So I hope that when we pass this legislation, that we will understand that we are doing great damage. And we could possibly and probably, as a commandant of the Marine Corps said, and I've been told by literally thousands of members of the military, harm the battle effectiveness, which is so vital to the survival of our young men and women in the military. I was wondering if you would mind telling us about how you thought through those trade-offs. So when I, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell got put into place 1993, I think it was the year of the law, but it's when the Clinton administration had come in and, and the compromise was Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So I'd been living with Don't Ask, Don't Tell for since 93 until until it changed and uh, and executing it. But when I heard President, I'm chairman in 2008 when then candidate Obama is on the campaign trail and he says, and if elected, I'm going to change that law. Well, that got my attention because I hadn't paid much attention to it over the course of that, uh, you know, decade, what is it, decade and a half, 93 or 15 years. Um, but now there's a possibility. Uh, so I started immediately when I heard it, I put a small group together and go, go study this, go look at it. I want to know what the literature says. Go back and find the experts of those days that went through this through this debate before and bring it all to me. And so we worked on it for, you know, I had a small team working on this for a couple of years. It obviously got much more serious as Obama won and was determined to do this. And again, we're in two wars. And then I would do at the time, and I was fully aware that if we we're going to do this, I certainly didn't want it to become a distraction for those that were serving. I did a lot of focus groups myself, two that were important to me. One was with a group of retired gays and lesbians who'd served 20 to 30 years who basically had to lie about who they were every single day. Another was with a group of small group of Marines in an embassy uh, uh, in a country around somewhere around the world. And I, I had lunch with there were five or six of them, and it was just me and and these five or six Marines, and one of the Marines, a senior Marine who was a sergeant, when I asked, I said, so what do you think about this? And basically what he said was, Chairman, if my best battle buddy, Marine battle buddy for multiple tours in Iraq, saved my life more than once, was a great Marine, et cetera, got out, found out he was gay. I found out he was gay. Quite frankly, I don't care whether he was gay or not. He was a great Marine. He did his job, and that's all, particularly in combat. That's all I cared about. So those are sort of two antidotes that 
were not insignificant. There were many others, quite frankly, that eventually gets me got me to the position of this complete mismatch of our values as an institution, the military, which is integrity. And then basically because of this law and policy, forcing someone to come in and lie about who they were every single day. And, and so when the time came and the hearing was there, that we had the hearing, that basically was the moment that I chose to say, makes no sense to me. We're an institution of integrity, and yet we're asking people to who were asking to die for our country, by the way, and some were, and at the same time lie about who they were. Just didn't match up. Uh, and as difficult as it was beyond that testimony, from the standpoint of the challenges of readiness that were brought up in morale, and that these were essentially, uh, I think, red herrings in the end, because it hasn't been much of an issue since we passed it, since the law was passed. But as difficult as those things were, it was the integrity issue, which I think in the end held the day in terms of our values. Uh, and that's not an insignificant lesson for me and a lot of other people. So I'm given credit, really courageous testimony and all that. Actually, by the time I got there, I worked it hard. I was very comfortable where I was. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't courageous at all. It was pretty easy testimony to give. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. When you took on that job, did you feel prepared? What experiences did you draw on as you transitioned from working in an almost exclusively military personnel environment toward interacting with civilian and elected officials? So before I came the, be, became the CNO in 2005, I was CNO from 2005 to 2006, I actually had a job in Europe, a Navy four-star job that was also a NATO four-star job. Uh, and part of that job on the NATO side was I commanded 17,000 ground troops in Kosovo. Uh, this was uh, towards the end of the Balkan uh, challenges, if you will, 2004 to 2005, but by no means were they over. First time I'd been around ground troops. That actually, in a way, became a preparatory session, if you will, a preparatory period of time for me when I got to chairman, having no idea I'd ever be chairman. So that's that's one aspect of it. Also working in NATO, which I'd done for years. So I'd worked with civilians. I'd worked in a complex political military environment. That helped me as well. But when people ask me about, particularly young people, is how do I get ready for the future? The best answer I can give you is, is take hard jobs. I talked about command early. Take jobs where you've got to figure out how to take calculated risk. Uh, take jobs where you are going to hold yourself and others will hold you accountable. Responsible jobs. It's another thing I loved about the Navy. I loved about going to sea. I loved ships because I was, I was the accountable officer. And that was a wonderful challenge. So it's and, and, and you asked the question, did I, you know, did I feel prepared? I, I did feel prepared. I'd been around for, you know, some 39 years, uh, had a lot of jobs in lots of different places, many of them in Washington later in my life, in my career. And I, I thought I was ready. I, I mean, I was surprised because because the conventional wisdom was that my predecessor, General Pete Pace, was going to stay on for two more years. But what happened was he got caught in the political crossfire, and and therefore President Bush asked me to take that job. And it was a great 
greatest privilege of my life, quite frankly, for which I'm, you know, I'll always be grateful to President Bush for, and to Secretary Bob Gates for giving me the opportunity. If you were still chairman, what advice would you have given the president on his recent decision to deploy active duty troops to the southern border to help enforce immigration policy? I'm not chairman. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And I, I don't have, you know, even actually, even if I were chairman, mm-hmm. I, I, typically I wouldn't talk about what my advice was to any president right. on any issue. That's usually, I mean, not usually, that's typically given in private. Okay. Do you see in general society any trends with regard to civil-military relations that you would be comfortable speaking about? Well, I, I was hugely concerned about what uh, General Flynn, who was my intelligence officer for uh, over a year, and General Allen did by making speeches at the respective Republican and Democratic national conventions, because I think they actually ended up politicizing the military. Do they have a right to do it? Yes. Are they civilians? Technically, yes. How do the American people see them? They see them as generals, quite frankly. And, and, and they weren't the first to ever speak at conventions. I think they were just, they were given the, the most significant positions, if you will. Uh, this has been going on for some time. You know, there's a view that when Admiral Crow retired, endorsed President Clinton, and then ended up as the ambassador to England, to the UK, uh, that that was what sort of opened the door, and that was 1992, 1993 timeframe, to this politicization of the military. I've been, I've said this a lot of different places, I've been in countries where the military is completely politicized. We wouldn't want to live in any of those countries. So it's all about keeping the military out of politics. And yes, they're retired, I understand that. But my own view is, unless they're politicians declared, running for an office or having won an office, they end up politicizing the military because American people look at them as experts and they look at them much more specifically as military experts than civilians. So that's that's the worry, that's the trend, and I'm hoping we can turn it around. The last point I'll make on that is, in addition to Kelly, uh, in addition to uh, Flynn and, and Allen, actually, in my view, politicizing the very institutions they cared about, they're also training our young ones that this is okay. Because you see people that you respect do it, and they've got a lot of followers, then they, when that officer gets out, they'll do the same thing. Do you think that there should be policy solutions in that regard, like prohibiting retired flag officers from doing that, or is it just no, incumbent actually, on them? I don't, think to... we, I don't think we could do that. I actually don't think it would be legal. I think we'd probably find our our way into court based on freedom of speech or something like that. Sir, many students here at the Harris School may eventually go into careers that are not explicitly related to national security, but who nevertheless may be very influential at the municipal, state, or federal levels of government. What's one thing you want them to know about the military? I want them to know that the roughly two million men and women that I had the privilege to serve with for four years as chairman, and, and that currently serve as well, active reserve and guard are the best I've ever seen in my life. It's an all-volunteer force I came in during a draft. They're extraordinary, that they come from fewer and fewer places, as I said, that there are fewer and fewer families that know anything about them, that we need to be talking outside 
who we are or outside our own circles, the military, if you will, for the reasons that we talked about earlier. And I also believe that this is a younger generation based on what I saw in a lot of war, a lot of combat environments, that's going to lead the country in the future in a very successful way. So I have, in pretty tough political times right now, I actually am a glass half full guy. And I think that when these young ones who were in their 20s when I saw them in the fight, they're probably in their late 20s or early 30s now, they're going to lead the country and we're going to be in good shape. They truly are young men and women of courage and sacrifice and service before self, extraordinarily capable. And that they're willing to die for our country, which many of them have in the last decade and a half, is representative of who they are. There is no higher calling and that our services are made up uh, of them and their families. And as extraordinary as the men and women who wear the uniform are, their spouses, their kids, their parents, their families, especially the spouses, are equally uh, extraordinary in every sense of the word. And you ought to, if you're an American citizen, you ought to take a minute to meet somebody and understand and engage somebody that's in our military. Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay. All right. We really appreciate you doing this. Okay. It's great talking to you. Thank right. you so much, sir. Let me know how about. All right. Yes, sir. All right. See you. Thank you for joining us for this episode featuring Admiral Mike Mullen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast to get the latest updates about our show. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spreaker so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. This podcast is produced by Haz Yano and Alec McMillan. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudia. Special thanks to Ashwarya Kumar, Anita Joshi, and David Raban. This podcast is a production of University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nick. See you next time. Hi, this is Jason Zukas, the host of Have You Heard? The UC3P News Quiz, a podcast where we quiz University of Chicago students on recent entertaining news stories. You can find us on any podcast platform by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P and can find out more about our upcoming live shows at facebook.com slash hyhnewsquiz. Thanks for listening.